0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Erica Blumfield.
1: I also loved to walk down the streets of Manhattan singing at the top of my lungs because I was in a constant music video,
0: so why not? that, and more. But first, I just want to give a huge shout out to a couple of our newest Patreon members. They are Bailey Pearson and Frederick Perrazzo. Thank you guys so, so very much. We're so thrilled. We're so grateful. I mean, (laughs) deeply grateful that some of you are really like pitching in to help us out over there at Patreon. And it it, it, it it's becoming very, very necessary. Uh, you know, advertisers, that situation is really scary for us right now. It's also scary for us and, and a little surprising that our corporate workshops over at the Story Studio have dried up a little bit for the time being. You know, the reason it's surprising is because corporate storytelling workshops Like the number one thing that people come away from those saying is, holy cow, that was such a morale boost. It was such a team building feeling sort of thing. Everyone feels so much more connected and on the same page and kind of excited about working together. So, you know, it seems like it would actually be an ideal time for a lot of companies to purchase a corporate storytelling workshop but I understand everyone right now is just going through this period of great uncertainty and that certainly includes us over here at risk which is why we're so so grateful for those of you that are pitching in over at patreon.com slash risk we put up a different bonus story every week we put up check-ins there's one I just recorded with Michelle Walson who co started the show with me in 2009 and still coaches all of our New York based storytellers. There's a conversation we just put up with, I do an interview with a risk fan, Jen Grippa. That was so much fun. An interview with Ray Christian is up there recently. Sometimes I'll just do video check-ins where it's just me talking straight to you about exactly how I'm really doing behind the scenes in my, in my tiny little apartment here with Quincy. But yes, to become a member over at Patreon is a hugely, hugely crucial way to help us out, keep this thing running and to access so much extra content. That it's just a real treat. For those of you who are over there, thank you so much. Maybe you might be able to consider upping your donation. You can go in there and change the amount that you're giving. Remember, it's a it, there's a wide range of options of how much you can give and what's available for all those options of giving, you know, in terms of uh, prizes and stuff like that, perks. So visit us at patreon.com slash risk. Please become a member or consider upping your donation if you are a member and thank you so, so very much. I can't express the gratitude, really. And uh, now here's the show. Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison and this is Herbie Hancock behind me now. We are calling this week's episode Passages. These are about turning points in people's lives or you know strange new things to get acclimated to on the road of life I'm so excited to announce the next thing that we're doing online we are doing so much experimentation lately and the next thing we're doing online is also going to be a complete and total experiment on the 29th of May Friday, May 29th at 10 p.m. Eastern. We're going to do a pitch-a-thon. We're going to do an online event. It's a, a ticketed thing, so you have to go to risk tour to get your tickets to do it. But it's going to be an event wherein you, Risk fans, can come on screen and spend a minute or maybe 90 seconds. We'll figure that out pitching a story to us and i will react to your pitch give you some notes maybe ask some of the other folks here who work at risk if they have any insights into it you know give you some tips on where what to do you know in the future with that story and we're hoping that out of this pitch-a-thon we'll actually discover some wonderful new stories and give all of our fans the opportunity to kind of see behind the curtain, to kind of see how we do react in the moment to stuff that's pitched to us on a daily basis. So we hope that this is kind of like a party, an online party, where we're hoping as many of you as possible show up you know you don't have to have a pitch in mind if you show up i think a lot of people will find this show very entertaining to watch because you'll hear a lot of stories although in many 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 form and you'll hear a lot of like reactions to those stories it's going to be very very entertaining i think so even if you don't have a story to pitch Come to the pitchathon at 10 p.m. Eastern on Friday, May 29th. And there'll be more information about it on all of our socials, you know, or at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. All of our socials are at Risk Show. So stay tuned to hear more about the Friday, May 29th at 10 p.m. Eastern pitch-a-thon which we're hoping to be a big, big party and really a show in and of itself. We hope to see all of you there. Another big experiment that we've just done on the show is going to appear on this episode you're listening to right now for the first time ever. We've taken a story that was told live in front of an audience at a theater, It was specifically the bootleg theater out there in Los Angeles. And we're intercutting it with more parts of that story that were recorded in private. So the storyteller told an extraordinary story for 15 minutes live on stage at the Risk show out in Los Angeles. Then we decided we wanted to hear even more from her. So we sat down with Erica Blumfield And had her tell us even more about that experience. And we've created an audio experience where you will hear the interweaving of a story told live in front of an audience to a story that goes into another realm in the radio style storytelling. So I'll be very curious to hear what you think of this extraordinary story. That our audio editor, John LaSala, put together on this episode. We're going to hear that story from Erica in just a bit. But before that, we're going to hear a story from one of our favorites, Lily B. in Chicago, Appeared on the Risk live stream show recently with a very daring, very risky sort of story, a relevation, releva, revel, revelation, revelation, <laughs> revelation before all those who were tuning into the live stream. So we're going to hear that first. You can find Lily B at lilyb.com, and here she is now with a story we call. The 40 year glitch Please welcome to the virtual stage Lily B <laughs> Hi,
3: <everyone.
4: laughs> uh, so happy to be here uh, for the seventh time. All right, uh, let's do this. I am 40 years old and I am sitting in my living room in my apartment. November 2018, just turned 40. I'm in my new apartment. I'm doing what it is, taking the dick inventory, the dick-inventory of all the men I have been with in my entire life asking myself, Lily, what the fuck is wrong with you like for real bitch what is wrong with you (laughs) because outside of your son's father who by the way cheated on you every guy after that has been progressively worse and they were right after my son's father was the dude that lived in the basement with all the rats that wanted me to move in with him and I considered it. The second, you know, was the alcoholic abusive bedwetting mama's boy. And then you had the curmudgeon who was manic depressive and didn't want anyone near him, but wanted you all to himself. I mean, he was a Gemini. And then the most recent (laughs) one, the, the one that did it was the 27 year old, Fuck boy from Naperville who took you camping and told you in a tent that you were going to die, bitch. Really? What the fuck is wrong with you? Because you're the least common denominator in all of these equations, is what I told myself. So it's got to be something with you and what you attract. And I know that I can be a little... Ugh, I know my faults, my bossy bitch, I'm kind of like mean sometimes, but there's got to be more, and I'd go down the rabbit hole of like you're feeling a void, a void left by, dun dun, dun, dun right? Your dad. So I decide that I'm going to reach out to my father and have a conversation with him. Our birthdays are close to each other. I'd make it like a birthday thing. So I contact him via Facebook Messenger because this is how close we are, and. I send him a, hey, dad, let's hang out. Let's do, let's let's have a a lunch. And he agrees. And in true my dad fashion, he uh, (laughs) blows me off for like a month and then agrees to meet up with me. And I think I'm going to go in on him because I want to go into this meeting like, you motherfucker! Uh, But something happens in that month that I have to wait that I decide... Bitch, it's been 25 years. <laughs> I mean, just go in there and tell him how you feel, but don't fuck it. And I do. I, I go in there and I sit across from him and I'm like, look, dad, you hurt me. Plain and simple. You hurt me. And this all ticks. it's all Spanish. I'm like, and it hurt me to see you abandon us. It hurt me to watch you raise family after family after family and leaving us in the cold, like legit in the cold. Me and one of his stepdaughters went to the same school and he'd pick her up from school and let me take the bus home. Like the emotional and psychological you ain't shit feeling that he left me with was the void that I had filled With every one of these relationships I told them this And you know what? I don't even want to hear the justification Or the excuse at this point I don't care I'm not saying this because I want anything I'm saying this because here, take it
3: Mm.
4: I don't want it anymore You are forgiven And because I love Lily B I love who I am I have to love you because I wouldn't be here without you. So I look at him, and he's teary. I'm crying into my omelet, and he's surprisingly (laughs) crying into his breakfast. And I'm looking at him, and he looks up at me, and he's like, I'm sorry, mija. And I am surprised, because that's all I've ever wanted, was an acknowledgement and an apology, and here I am getting it. And we leave the diner. Cool. Like, we're good. I mean, we ain't daddy-daughter dancing it up, or, you know, <laughs> but at least now I'm going to show up to his funeral. <laughs> and I'm healed, right? So a month later, in January-ish, mid-January, I... Decide that I'm going to get back online with this newfound, like, wisdom and and heal. I'm healed. I'm healed. I'm going to be able to, like... You know, rewrite my okay, oh, Cupid to reflect this. And I, I'm a daddy now, and I I don't need y'all to validate me. So I am like healed, and I get back online, and I what used to be like the ninja warrior, Lily B way, to, like to get a date with me. It was like this ninja warrior. Now it was like American Ninja Warrior. Like it was still just as hard, but uh, everything was there, just you just had to work a little bit less because I don't have daddy issues anymore. <laughs> and I go through my, my shit. I'm, I'm back on my bullshit, y'all. I'm like, did you pass the written, right? Which is the text messaging. And now we're on to the phone interview, uh, which is like, let's see if we can have an engaging conversation. And then the face-to-face interview. And after several applicants right <laughs> I, I, I i nab one like he's good he's like he's my type like he's long hair a dimple in his chin he's got shit going for him you know what your mommy and your daddy going to love this dude if he ever makes it that far right and so we agree now i got to say i had talked to myself at 40 into a rap battle um which is on instagram and uh he this is what gets him in the door for the date like this is what we're meeting about is that i had written some rhymes i don't rap by the way i just said like i could do that shit and here i am in a rap battle now and he was going to help me with my rhymes and we so we meet at this cafe and he is just as good in person as he is online and over the phone. Very respectful. He's not doesn't get too close, isn't too far, is like really into me. He keeps saying like how cool it is that at 40 I'm taking these kind of like chances and doing these things that I've never done before. He respects and admires that. In in Spanish we say está enchulao. Like he is very smitten with me. <laughs> and we close down the cafe because i can't rap in the cafe right i can only read the rhymes and he's like you know i'd like to hear these rap like you rapping them and so i say let's go to my place i can play some like you know beats and i can rap over them and he's like that'd be great if you don't mind and i'm like no i don't mind because i don't have any intention on doing anything with him because i said that in my profile i want to make a connection first i don't want to repeat the mistakes I've made before. Let's just connect. And he was about it. So we're at my house and, uh, and we're sitting on the couch and, uh, and I'm, and I decide to spit this scheme. It's this set of verses around a theme. And the theme is like Game of Thrones. And, <laughs> it, uh, I'm the mother of dragons, which means I'm catching that breath. Winter is here now, bitch. Prepare for your death, because we all know that you're just a little finger snitch. I'm savage like Dothraki, which means I'm making you my bitch. And I know, problematic, but that's how you win rap battles, yo. So I feel him. I, I, I finished that verse. I finished that scheme, and I feel his, like, musculature on my shoulder leaning in for a kiss and I lose it like I'm and I'm like get I get up and I'm just like get the fuck out you need to go you need to go Uh uh-uh I can't believe it you just like every other dude you're trying to get your dick wet and he's like I know I'm saying I know I was like "No, no 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 you got to go you have to go and he doesn't know what to but he's respectful so he leaves and then I ghost him like He's texting me sorry, and I don't care. And I'm on the couch a few days later after I've tried to, like, justify this, and I can't anymore. And again, I'm asking myself, Lily, what the fuck is wrong with you? Because he was good. He wasn't like any of those motherfuckers. He was good. And... I asked Google this time what's wrong with me and Google sends me a fucking list that I'm now like on the rabbit hole you know, what the fuck is wrong with Lily B and I find myself reading a thread or rather this thread is reading me because it's shit like the first one i read is like you know i gotta just find new friends because like all they want to talk about is fucking and eating ass and like i'd rather be eating cake and i was like yeah i'd rather be eating cake too than listening to my friends talk about that and like i knew in high school when like everybody was trying to lose their virginity and i was like playing world of warcraft and and i connected with that one as well and Ooh, it was my, like, Kaiser Soze usual suspects moment, right? Chaz Pimentary dropped the, the, the cup, Kobayashi at the bottom. I'm like, oh, bitch, you are asexual. That's the Reddit group I was in. It's got a little ace with the pink, with the, the black, white, purple, and gray, little flag, and I'm like, holy shit. It all makes sense. The fucking getting good at sucking dicks or you didn't have to fuck, the pussy dry now because you're just not into it. Uh, the, even the time with the woman and all those dudes t- accusing you of cheating and you weren't like, OMG. Like, it was, that was that moment. And I now have opened up a new can of worm questions, right? Where I'm like, Well, what the fuck do I do now? Do I call these motherfuckers and tell them I'm sorry? Do I, like, well, sorry? I mean, Jesus, if you're watching, I'm so sorry. You're great. It was me. I didn't know. And, I mean, I don't know what to tell people when they ask me if I'm single. Like, yes, but for life? I don't know. I'm still, like, now I am in a place where I don't know where I am. But I'm good with it. Because at least now I know. And I guess that's what I take from this. Because it's only been a year. And I'm coming out to, like, 400 people right now. Um, <laughs> crazy. But it's like, I know now. And so I haven't asked myself what the fuck is wrong with me since that day. Instead, if that thought crosses my mind. Like, Lily, what the fuck is, it's, hold on, bitch. It's not what's wrong with you. It's, Lily, what don't you know about you? Yes. And. Uh, <laughs> Are you ready to strap in and go on this journey to figure it out? Mm. And you know what, y'all? That right there, that shit gets me off.
0: Wow, wow, wow. Holy. Wow, yeah, Lily B. coming out to 400 people tonight. <laughs> that is outrageous. That's amazing. And our apologies to Jesus. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That was so, so cool.
1: As far back as I can remember, I knew I was going to be a mom. I was one of those people who would see an adorable baby and be like, yum, that baby's so delicious. I'm gonna eat them up. And even when I was in high school, I would imagine myself in the future, famous actress and married and on the cover of Vanity Fair, naked with a big pregnant belly, a la Demi Moore. As it turns out, I'm 43, and I'm not a mom, and I decided that this is what's best for me. But you know, when I tell people, like when I meet people and I tell them that I'm not a mom and that this is what I decided was best for me, they'll say things like, oh, but you must be a mom. You don't know love till you're a mom. You don't know real joy. You don't know gratitude. And I would Google like motherhood and things would come up motherhood, all love begins and ends there. But we know that not everyone can have children and that can be really heartbreaking. And we know a lot of people don't want children for a lot of reasons. And so I think people should be more careful with their words because they don't know these people's stories they don't know my story they don't know that 15 years ago i found myself homeless and you know for me homelessness didn't happen overnight my house didn't burn down it wasn't repossessed i wasn't addicted to drugs it was this unraveling of my mind this process stemming from mental health issues. And I had been living in New York City for eight years. I went to NYU. I worked. I was a waitress and a bartender and a hotel concierge. I had a budding acting career and a boyfriend I was madly in love with. Connor, a musician who was in an up and coming indie rock band called (laughs) E-Ray. We met at an off-Broadway theater in the Garment District of Manhattan and I was the bartender and he was the drummer in a rock and roll musical. The first time I saw him play, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. He was dynamic and the beats were amazing, and three weeks after meeting, I moved in with him. He would get me on the list at every hottest music venue on the Lower East Side and the East Village in Brooklyn, and we would go out after and stay out all night to dive bars like the Holiday Cocktail Lounge in Alphabet City and kickback whiskeys and chain smoke Marlboros, and. Every night he would sing Me to Sleep, our song, 13 by Big Star, which asks, will you be an outlaw for my love? I knew he would be. And my life was everything I could have ever hoped for. And one of the things that Connor loved about me was that I was so determined and I had so much passion for my life as an artist, my desire to be an actor and a writer. I was writing one-woman shows and performing them anywhere I could get a spot, like the Duplex in the West Village. I was having meetings with agents and managers and I got really skinny (laughs) and bleached my hair blonde, and I felt as hot as Debbie Harry. (laughs) And I was on my way to realizing all my dreams... And my boyfriend Connor and I lived in utter bliss for two years and then he began touring all the time with his band and I took it hard over the course of the couple years that we were together I had abandoned my social circle and had made him my entire life and so I was also, for most of my adult life, estranged from my family, and so when he was gone, I was alone. And then this unraveling began of my mind, and I started experiencing these breaks from reality. And I started doing things with this like inexhaustible energy that I had. I would walk from Brooklyn to Manhattan and back. I would ride subways all night into all kinds of neighborhoods. I, I was praying fervently in churches. Even though I was an atheist and Jewish before that. And I would walk the streets for so many days and so many nights that I I became covered in the soot of the city. Like one night, I walked along the edge of a bridge that led from Greenpoint, where I lived, into Queens. At first, it felt like a euphoria that I imagine people only feel on drugs. It's exquisite. You see in technicolor, everything tastes extraordinary, smells extraordinary. You can go to a museum and stand in front of a picture and feel as though you are inside of it. You are the brushstrokes. It only exists because you are there. I would go to the Met, and I would stand before my favorite painting, Salome, and it glowed. It was as though it was made for me. Your emotions are so on the surface and you take everything in. You're this vessel or, or, you know, you just, everything is sensory. You have a flight of ideas that, I would make millions on Shark Tank if I could remember any of them. (laughs) But most significantly, I became famous in my mind. See, I was in the midst of a bipolar manic episode, but I had become the star of my own reality show a la The Truman Show. Like Truman, I wasn't supposed to know that this show was going on. Unlike Truman, I loved being famous. And so I didn't talk to anyone about that I knew that this was happening, that I was being filmed 24 hours a day and it was being broadcast live. Now, I believed, even though I had never met them, that the producers of the show were Oprah and Madonna. And I believed that the whole purpose of the show was for Connor, the musician boyfriend and myself to be in a band together. That way we wouldn't have to be apart and Madonna would give us a record deal and I would be on my way to that magazine cover. Basically, I felt like I was God's gift to the green earth. I mean, I was hot. I mean, even Madonna was gonna even say, oh yeah. This girl, she beats me out, and that is not Madonna's style. We were gonna be very tight. I had, you know, the self-absorbed notion that I was so important that everyone wanted to know about me. Now, keep in mind, I wasn't ever a singer, and I can dance, but not like Madonna dance, not even close. But in my mind, I was absolute genius and I knew sex sells. And so I wrote this song called Flammable Nymphomaniac. And it wasn't as if I was on TV with it or getting record deals. I was in my apartment singing it and gyrating around sometimes thinking there were cameras in there. I also loved to walk down the streets of Manhattan singing at the top of my lungs because I was in a constant music video. So why not? I told Connor that I had made a little extra money while he was away, and we hired a professional music engineer and asked some of Connor's buddies to come into the studio and help us out, and we recorded this song. I dirty dance late night. I'll lead you in a trance. Mischievous, devious, a a dangerously position. Are you gonna chant me? A flammable nymphomaniac. Are you gonna chant me? A flammable nymphomaniac. Make me burn. And from there I wrote some silly songs and we would laugh and we called them the bedroom tapes. They were just something we did together for a lark. But as my delusion started getting stronger and stronger, that's when I believed that they would all be number one hits. Yeah,
3: Mama believes for me, a yeah.
1: devious, incredibly ambitious. Connor noticed I was changing and he didn't like it. When we met, I was the kind of girl who carried a journal around with her everywhere she went and would sit in Washington Square Park and read great literature all day. But now I was this girl on the loose and I was starving myself, flirting at parties, trying to get business cards from managers and people in the music industry. And I was trying to ride his coattails. He was humiliated too, because he was a serious musician. I mean, his band was being called a more inventive cold play. And I was a joke. No. And I was convinced that this would be a huge hit. I would surpass Madonna. Now, Connor, he didn't want to be in a band with a girlfriend, especially one who couldn't sing and never played an instrument. And he had his own thing going on. But I thought all the conflict that we were having over the band was him playing along, that it was good for ratings. And so naturally, I decided the thing to do was use the rent money that he had been sending me from the road to record a professional music demo because I knew we would get that record deal, but we didn't, and we got evicted. And even though I went to a doctor and started some treatment and got diagnosed with bipolar disorder and started taking mood-stabilizing medicine, even though I thought they were sugar pills, Connor did not want to be in a band with me, and he also did not want to be with someone with mental illness, he said. He had come home from the road, and there were dishes piled so high, filthy, roaches crawling everywhere. I had, like, thrown a towel over it, hoping he wouldn't notice. I was so depressed at that point that I couldn't bathe. And when he had gotten home, he did try, and make love to me. And it had been so many days since I showered that he had to ask me to go shower. Ugh. After he had been home for a few weeks, I told him that I wanted to die. Things were strained, I knew the end was coming in the depression and I picked up a knife and I held it to my wrist and he said go ahead and do it already just don't make a mess I don't want to have to clean it up but when I was manic I thought what great drama and he broke up with me Eviction was pending. He moved his stuff out. And I was alone, waiting for the knock to come. So I, with the little money I had, flew out west to Los Angeles with my one vintage blue 1950s suitcase with a busted lock from the Goodwill, my floral decoupaged hat box with my favorite hat, a white wide-brim hat like the one Bianca Jagger wore the day she married Mick, and my bottle of mood-stabilizing pills. And I knew that Connor would follow me to L.A., and we would get that record deal. And I found myself, with almost no money and without a home. So I checked into a sex worker motel. It was in Van Nuys, the porn capital of the world or California, and it had a nautical theme. The bed was itchy, I remember, and I was convinced there were bed bugs. And I slept in the bathtub with my blanket in the pillow. There were people living there with children, also homeless. There'd also be some tourists, though. Maybe they didn't realize where they were checking in. I guess the idea was that you could be in and out. You didn't have to rent the room for the whole day. They were conducting their business out of there. I would see people passing through, leaving rooms. It was this bizarre juxtaposition of some tourists sitting out by the dirty pool with women in daisy dukes and tops that could have been mistaken for bras and strange men walking in and out of the lobby. And I remember watching... Everyone thinking, what good actors. This seems so real. Something that was a theme in the mania too was that somehow I was gonna be able to help people. It seemed purposeful for the show as well. Good ratings and I was somehow going to be able to help a sex worker get off the street that I was gonna be able to help. It was like sometimes I was dangling from this thin thread of reality where I would question the notion of this reality show and I would think, if this isn't real, you're in serious trouble. But the delusion was so grand and it was so powerful that it would like push that little bit of reality out of my mind and get a grip of my mind. And I'd think, the producers have a plan (laughs) and ratings must be sky high. Everything's gonna be fine. I would go to the Goodwill and try on outfits just for fun. I spent a lot of time looking in the mirror and like doing monologues into mirrors, and I just sauntered the streets and would talk to whoever would talk to me. In L.A., I used to spend a lot of time at Marilyn Monroe's grave crying and saying, the world destroyed you, like the world is destroying me. I'm at the store on the corner just down from the motel, and I was buying some donuts, counting out pennies, when the purple shadowed prostitute whose room was next door to mine with these like talons for fingernails, she handed the woman behind the counter a dollar and she said, it's on me. And we walked out and I thanked her, and she told me her name, Sapphire. And as we walked back towards the hotel, she looked down at my feet and my flip-flops and she said, Girl, you have got to get those feet pedicured. I'll loan you some polish. She continued and she said, Look, I don't know your story. I don't need to know your story, but you seem like a nice girl. There is a blood plasma bank not far. You can sell it, get some cash, and they give you a juice and cookie too. I'm at the plasma bank and the guy behind the counter, he's like very pale and chubby and he's wearing a lab coat and he hands me the form to fill out. And I look around the room and I think these are not the type of people I'm accustomed to being around and they certainly don't smell like the people I'm accustomed to being around. And I think, wow, the casting department is so good. In my bipolar episodes, my perceptions would fluctuate. When I was more on the depressive side and I would pass a homeless person or see, in this instance, in the waiting room of the blood plasma bank to donate, I was scared. I was scared. I would have this sense that my situation was dire, (sighs) that I was lost, that I was alone, that I was in danger. But when I was manic, I believed they were the extras and I was the star. And there was this plot line running through my head, a successful college graduate, New Yorker has a fall and ends up slumming it, losing everything. And the idea of me clawing my way back would show that anything is possible. It was all very exciting. I was getting to meet a sex worker in the flesh. I was going to a place where I remember I had only known about from some dark ABC special once that my parents let me stay up too late to watch, a blood bank. And so I'm filling out the form, like history of this, allergies, medications you're on, and I hand it in to him. He's looking it over. And then he, he looks up at me, and he's all red in the face now, scrunched up, and he started shouting at me, your plasma is toxic, what do you want to do, give mothers two-headed babies? And I was stunned, the image of the mothers distraught looking at their deformed baby the thought of my own deformed baby and that thin thread that I was dangling from I was grabbing a hold of and maybe the medications kind of working and the shock from what he said I'm mentally ill and I have to take this medication for the rest of my life That's what they said. They said it would be a very slippery slope without it. And if that's true, what would happen to my baby? There would be no baby. Not the baby I imagined. There would be no famous husband. There'd be no acting career. I had lost Everything, And the one thing that could have been mine, that I knew no matter what would keep me going, was over. It feels like my body betrayed me. I mean, anyone who's ever held a baby, you know, you feel the warmth, and you feel the little hands, maybe, grabbing for your hair, and you feel heart against heart. And I wanted that. Why wouldn't someone want that? Until you figure out. (laughs) It's a lot of work. But there was a sense that the ultimate would be bringing a life into the world that you could show that no matter what they face or have to go through, that I would be there for them. And so many people don't have that and I wanted to give that and I knew I would get a lot in exchange too. It's not completely selfless. I get back to the motel and Sapphire was waiting for me and she asked me how it went. And it all poured out, my confusion, this reality show, Oprah and Madonna, and the baby, the baby that I would never have. And Sapphire said, girl, you've got bigger fish to fry than having a baby. And besides, babies aren't all they're cracked up to be. Through Sapphire's help, I found a California state-funded, God love California, not God, whatever, the universe, and sorry, <laughs> just had to clarify. And... Um, It was for people with mental illness and who were homeless, and I lived there for two and a half years till I was stable enough to live on my own. The two and a half years I spent in the recovery home had ups and downs. My bipolar was fiercely determined to rule my mind. We tried many different medications, and it can take a really long time. The other clients, patients, consumers, were chronically homeless, most addicted to drugs and or alcohol, and many who had criminal records. There was this night, it was my night to cook, I got really into it, (laughs) and I made a gourmet meal of pasta with fresh mozzarella and peppers. They like gave us a budget. And Gary, he was homeless, and he had schizoaffective disorder. And I made this dinner, and he looked up after he took his bite, and he said, Thank you. This is like a five-star hotel meal. And is weird and bizarre and out of anything I had ever conceived of. I felt proud of myself and less alone. And I felt like he needed to eat more at five-star hotels because my food was really not that good. (laughs) But... I had so much love to give. I got out of the home, and although the mania was reined in, I still really struggled with the depression. My psychiatrist suggested that I volunteer somewhere, and immediately a nonprofit came to mind where I could go and volunteer and help children after school with their homework and help them with writing. And I did that, and it started lifting the depression. I had that old feeling again that I had when I played with my cousins, that I had when I was a camp counselor. This feeling of everything is okay. It saved me because it allowed me to contribute to something bigger, something important for kids who didn't have a lot right some kids have all the luck and all the privilege some don't and maybe even that in a way just this desire to help those that people may not realize need help they knew I was had gone off my rocker and I had a special conversation with them. They had called me in, and they recognized me from the neighborhood. And I'm really passionate about people being given a fair chance in this life, and people looking out for people, because people look out for me. The other day, I was with a new friend. And we passed by this woman, this woman who was ranting, covered in the filth of the city. And I said, I can't believe that this is what's going on in society. I can't believe that this is happening, that we walk by people who need help, myself included. And he said, she's never coming back. She's a waste of a life. And I thought to myself, how many people walked by me and thought that? And I thought, how many people didn't? Like Sapphire. And I said to him, one day I'll tell you my story and maybe you'll change your mind and the only thing I know to do is share my story so that people realize that every life is salvageable and so when people say you must be a mother to know joy and love and gratitude I know that What I feel, all of those things that I feel for the people who helped me along the way and who continue to help me is immeasurable. Thank you.
0: This is Risk. This is Philip Glass behind me now. And we just heard from Erica Blumfield. Holy cow. I am so grateful to Erica for sharing that so beautifully. Like I said, it was first recorded at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles at a Risk Live show out there. And then I spoke to David Crabb, who had coached her for that show, and we both felt like, gosh, it's such an incredible story, but we feel like we'd like to hear even more. So David sat down with Erica at his home in Los Angeles and recorded other sections, and then we kind of wove them together. Well, specifically, John LaSala, our audio editor, wove them together into that extraordinary piece. Please let us know what you think of the stories i'll tell you the risk staff and all the storytellers and other risk listeners are always completely fascinated to hear the perspectives of the listeners you know how a certain story struck you what it made you feel what it reminded you of anything like that we're always eager to hear the best place to do that is at the risk podcast fans discussion group on facebook but also (laughs) if Erica's story or Lily's story during this podcast so far Triggered any memories for you or reminded you of something else and made you think, oh gosh, maybe I could tell a story about this or that thing in my life. Well, then come to the Risk Pitchathon. <laughs> it's a pay what you wish deal. It's May 29th at 10 p.m. Eastern. You email me at Kevin at risk show.com if you think you might have a pitch that you'd like to make in front of a bunch of other people at the Risk Pitchathon. I will give you all my reactions. Other people will vote on what they'd most like to hear on the show. It's going to be a real party. Anyone can attend without having anything to pitch, but just to see the behind-the-scenes machinations of how story pitching and story workshopping goes. And to get your pay-what-you-wish tickets for the Pitchathon thon on May 29th, just go to risk-show.com tour. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear an extraordinary story that David Crabb shared at one of our recent live stream shows. This story that David shared is a sort of a sequel to another story that he shared on the podcast recently. But before that, a little anecdote that a Risk fan sent in now, we are still hoping that you guys will send in these 3 minute and 30 seconds or less, you know, somewhere around in there, short stories about just one little incident that happened to you. There's information about how to pitch us your anecdotes at the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook. It's the pinned post there. And so here is one of those. It came to us from Timon Vandervoord. And it's a story we call The Black Cat.
5: You know what happens when your whole city goes in lockdown and you're only allowed outside recreationally to exercise? Everybody starts to exercise. Everybody goes outside for a breath of fresh air. I don't mean it in a bad way, you know, it's just you're inside all the time and when you want to go outside for a breath of fresh air, i rather not share it with anybody else. You know, I just want some peace and quiet. Just outside and suddenly it hit me there is a very beautiful cemetery near my house like 20 minute walk it's called the campo santo and it's it's just immensely beautiful it has a hill in the middle and it has a beautiful small church on top of it It has small parts of forest between the graves and the graves are extraordinary it's like an open-air museum it's very dramatic so that's where i'll go but walking is one thing. I always like to take a podcast with me. So I listened to Risk because I love stories and they have amazing stories. And the mood of Risk always sets the mood for me. And it was about 20 minutes to walk to the cemetery. And before I realized, I was headfirst into the TC Madison story. You know, the Turkish Delight story. I was feeling, I was soaking up Big dick bitch energy. I was laughing, laughing, not looking around, laughing, and suddenly I realized I was already at the cemetery, and the Turkish delight story was still going And So I was bellowing. I was. I started to walk into the cemetery, laughing, and the story ends. And I take my headphones off, and the audience dies away, and my laughter fades away, and nothing. I'm completely alone in the middle. a cemetery you know the one place where you remind yourself that death is real and you're gonna die one day and (laughs) and be and be here i start to read names and look at pictures and see poems on graves and i feel like almost an intruder and i realize all these stories i'm listening to are here all around me all these people all have stories they're not telling anymore and I'll be here and one day I'll be dead and I won't be telling stories and and this train of thought goes through my head and I was like what the fuck why am I here and I turn around the corner I turn around the massive grave and suddenly I see something out of the corner of my eye out of a grave comes a cat and the cat looks horrible (laughs) It looks like he's been there for 80 years or more and gambled away 7 of his 9 lives already and he looks at me with such an intensity because his whole fur is all dusty and, and it's full of stones and he looks at me with such an intensity like like what 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 are you doing here and I see his gaze and I'm like I start to explain myself before I can explain myself he literally dives into another grave and he's gone again I stand there, in the middle of the cemetery, realizing I was just about to explain my own mortality to a street cat and the sun is setting on this beautiful Sunday afternoon and I think, maybe enough stories for today, maybe I should just go home. And I did.
0: to the virtual stage, David Crab.
2: Hi! Oh my God, this is so fascinating. Just before I start, just I love, like I was listening to Jana's story and the chat function, just people as she thinks about it, they're like, no girl, don't go, it's not safe. It's just, it it, like ups the stakes of this whole, it's amazing, it's amazing. Thank you for doing this, Kevin. So by the time I graduated from high school, I lived in over 20 different homes. When I tell people this, they almost act like they want to call like social service, like retroactively, but it's not all bad. Uh, My parents got divorced when I was two. And they shared custody, so there was that kind of doubling. And there was also, like, my dad was married and divorced three times. My mom, we lived with her fiancé for a while. We lived with another boyfriend for a while. So there was that. And some of the moves weren't even bad. Like, there were times when my mom got, like, promoted to manager at the maternity store in the mall. So, boom, I was getting, like, a new apartment with my own private bathroom. Do you know what I mean? For me, this idea of moving around a lot is sort of exciting and joyful. And even my mom shares that with me. Every time when I go home to San Antonio, Texas, my mom and I can blow a whole afternoon just going to old places that we lived. We will literally for five hours like weirdos, like park outside of other people's houses and just be like, do you remember Thanksgiving? Um, we laugh, we tell stories. There are times when we've even gone to places that don't maybe have wonderful memories and we've like cried together. and. My mom is funny because she loves uh, criminal forensics. She has all like the Ted Bundy books and the John Wayne Gacy books and all of that. So she calls us returners. Uh, Returners are a real thing. Um, There are numerous famous serial killers who've only been caught because they can't not go back to the scene of the crime when they're like carting the body out, literally. So they're photographed and that leads them to the killer, right? It's a crazy thing. So my mom and I are that, but like the fun, non-murdery, like son-mom version, you know? Um, and I think that because of this moving around, I I really connect like sense memory and feeling to places. Like, I really feel strongly that like a geographical place is where like a feeling lives. And I have this, maybe it's a superhero power, but it could be a weakness depending. I have this thing where I can go back to a place and feel so closely the way I felt when I was there. Now... I have been with my husband, Jack, for 16 years, and we lived most of the time together in New York. And for all of our years in New York, we only had two different apartments. But when we moved to LA in 2016, let's see, we've been here um, five years, we've lived four different places already. I'm really collecting sense memories at this point. One of the places that we lived was a little house in 2018. And we were so happy to live in this house together. Uh, It had a little yard um, for our dog, Charlie, who was kind of like, he was a little Jack Russell Chihuahua and he was like our son. And we loved this place. And three months into living there, we got a notice from the owners that we were gonna be evicted. Now, that was a struggle enough, but uh, the other thing we were dealing with was our little dog had a brain tumor. And for the months that we were fighting with the people that owned the house, we were also going back and forth from a veterinary cancer center trying to like, save our little dog's life. And throughout all of this, I have Crohn's disease. And if you don't know what that is, it's an autoimmune disease uh, of your guts. And that was acting up because I was stressed. I mean, our life was literally a country song. It was like everything bad that could happen was happening. <laughs> and then by the time April came around, which was our last month in the house, we were packed up. Unfortunately, our little dog died, and we were about to be homeless for a month. Now, uh, when I say homeless, we're not really homeless. Uh, we had a beautiful house waiting for us June 1st, but we had this weird month where we didn't have a place to go. So we depended on all of our friends and their kindness. We you know, watered people's plants. We stayed in guest rooms. We fed cats when people were out of town, and it was fine. And the first place that we ended up during this whole phase was a little tiny studio apartment right across the street from the big blue Scientology dormitory building. You've seen it in all of the documentaries. It's the giant blue iconic building. It was the lowest I've been in my whole life. And in that little tiny studio apartment with my six and a half foot tall husband, Jack, I was just losing my shit. He would go to audition and work and I would just sit and stew and weep and stare out the window at Scientologists. I mean, I would watch them like, it was like an Attenborough special. Do you know what I mean? I would just watch them gather and talk. And like, you know, they wear the little black and white suits. Um, they always have little keys on bracelets and walkie-talkies. They're putting out fires, like peas and carrots, peas and carrots. They're very busy extras in a movie with no lead. Do you know what I mean? And at a certain point, Watching them, it was almost like watching an ant farm, do you know what I mean? Like, just cycle through. And it reminded me of my own grief. It seemed never-ending and pointless, and it was just going nowhere. Thank God, eventually, we got out of that place, and we moved into our new house. Now... I had a one-year job as a professor at a college in LA and along with it came this beautiful miraculous gift, a beautiful little academic housing house, tiny little house, huge green front yard, literally a white picket fence across the front of it. Like it was idyllic. This house was like a place to like recharge and like rebuild my family, really. It was amazing being there. Um... My husband played piano all day long. He uh, discovered that he loved plants because he had the space to actually explore that. I taught, like I walked to my class, like paper chase and shit, like professor in like, you know, the patchy tweed coat. I love my students. I love their energy. I even did a solo show that was in my living room where 10 people bought tickets and they came to the house to see it. Like this is how much I love this house. Is what I'm trying to get across. You couldn't make me leave it to perform theater. And most importantly, we adopted a new little dog. This little, mangy, hairless, just mutt from Tijuana that we named Frankie. He was like the last piece of our house. And he was the last piece that we needed during this really amazing house. And that house, if a place geographically is muscle memory, that place is just joy for me. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't occasionally drive by sometime and just like feel like the golden like, heat radiating off it of that happy, happy time. Right when it was time to move from that house, this was at the end of last summer, I got an insane relapse of my Crohn's disease. Now, if you don't know what Crohn's disease is, it's an autoimmune disease, um, like arthritis or lupus, uh, all sorts of you know uh, gut diseases. And it means that your immune system attacks itself. And I got sick really quickly. There was internal bleeding, I lost weight. My doctor was like, I've never seen it happen this fast. You've lost so much weight we have to go straight to the silver bullet. And I was like, well, what's that? And he said, it's a thing called Remicade, and it's an immunosuppressor. It's an infusion like chemo, and you're probably going to need it every four to eight weeks. And I was scared about this because it's a biologic drug, and you have to take drugs when you take it to stop the drug from doing things that the other drug will do. Like, it's a whole thing. And I told my husband Jack about it. And he was also nervous, but he had been with me for so long, he had seen me through four or five really serious Crohn's flare ups where I was really sick or I had to be hospitalized. And we just had to go all in on this very expensive kind of crazy out there treatment. And we did it. And I got my first infusion and within a week, I was feeling better. And I started to gain weight. It was amazing. And it is a weird treatment because it essentially, you know, if you have an autoimmune disease, it means your immune system is attacking itself. So it might sound weird to you to be like, why would you want to kill your immune system? Because that's what this does. But I mean, like, who needs an immune system when it's killing you, right? It's not like some sort of global pandemic or plague is going to descend upon the world and leave you very vulnerable to disease and death. That's never going to (laughs) happen. Cut to a month ago. It became very clear to all of us, you, me, everyone watching, everyone everywhere, that we were in the shit. And my doctors started telling me, and I do have a small team of them that do different things. They either told me during appointments or emailed me, you need to not get this. David, you cannot get this. And I had an appointment, even with a dermatologist, it was like a checkup. And as I was leaving, she shut the door and stood by it. It was very noir and she was like, David, You need to be careful. And, like, you know when the doctor that just, like, checks you for moles is, like, being all, like, you know, Ozark, weird, intense suspicion with you? Like, it means something, right? I told Jack that I was scared, and Jack was scared, too, because in the weeks leading up to this happening, what my husband does is teach people piano. So, for the weeks leading up to this reveal that there was a disease you could have and not show symptoms of for 14 days... My husband was in the homes of no less than 20, 25 different people, many of them children, shaking their dad's hands, hugging their moms, sharing piano keys with 7-year-olds and 9-year-olds and 11-year-olds. And there was this panic that set in where we both almost felt like I already had it. And we knew that I had to get out of the house. So we reached out to some friends, and a friend of ours uh, was shooting a Netflix show in Canada and said, go to our place in uh, downtown L.A. And I went there, but the fourth day was the day that the whole world went apeshit. Trudeau made a huge speech, and they called being like, we literally have 24 hours to get out of Canada, Netflix is shutting down. So I just put on Facebook, does anyone have a place for me? Does anyone have a home for me? And I got a message from an old friend who said, Hey David, if you want, my little studio right across the street from the Scientology building is going to be open because I'm going to go be with my family. And I told Jack this, and we packed up my stuff, and we drove there in masks and gloves. And as we pulled up to the apartment, Jack asked me, he said, are you going to be okay? And I said, yeah, yeah. And he asked me that because he knows how I am about places, and he knows what we went through here. And we didn't hug or shake hands, and it, like, hurt that we couldn't do that because I never had had that before with the love of my life, you know. And I walked into the apartment, it was, like, immediate muscle memory negative reflex like the bed was the bed I wept on and like screamed into a pillow the couch was the couch that I cried on like it was all terrible and on top of that I also had just the fear and anxiety of waiting 14 days to know if I was going to maybe have this thing that I probably according to my doctors maybe wouldn't survive so I just paced around in this cage really and every cough was like the end and every sore throat when I woke up in the morning was like a tombstone, and I would like hate read these articles about what older people and people who were sick and people who were immunosuppressed like me, what they were going through if they got this disease. But mostly, I would just look out the window and watch Scientologists. Uh, I (laughs) would sit. And just watch them do their thing. And they're, you know, they're such an easy target. I I could look at them with such an animosity because they weren't doing any of the things. They were standing two feet apart. They were shaking hands. They were breathing in each other's faces. And then two days after I got here, all of a sudden they weren't. They were wearing masks. And then the next day they were in gloves and they were like five feet apart. And then two days after that, the Scientologists just disappeared. And I didn't see them. The way that I didn't see my husband or my friends, or that anyone saw me, or that none of us saw each other. And it might be cliche to say this, but I was like, oh shit, we really are all in this together, even the Scientologists, you know what I mean? (laughs) 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 (sighs) There was a day not long ago when I was talking to my husband and we talked for like an hour and a half and I typically don't like talking to my husband on the phone. Hey, honey, if you're watching, uh, I don't. Uh, And I think it's because when you know someone that well, the phone is frustrating. It's so far away from the way you really know each other. And it was really beautiful that I got to have this like 90 minutes with him. It was so nice and when I hung up, I was filled with this rush of like sadness that I hadn't seen in like three weeks. And you know when you're really panicked or sad sometimes like an idea will poke through like a thumbtack poking through styrofoam to make like a little light for like a star in the ceiling or something like there was this little idea that hit me and I was like, you know what, I've been away from my husband longer than this before. What if I just think of this as a trip? What if I just think of this as that thing that I said for five years, I'm going to get an Airbnb in the desert and I'm going to go finish my next memoir or work on an important project. What if I just try to fucking get into that headspace? So I asked myself, what would I do if I was in the desert? And I was just alone and I had that space. And I was like, well, I've always wanted an idea wall. I know that sounds crazy, but I've always wanted one of those walls with like index cards and post-its, like the serial killer wall with like the thread and all that, with like, here's my book idea and my sketch idea and my stuff. And I made it. I just took a painting down. Also, sorry if the, you're, Jillian, if you're watching this, I took your painting down, but it's safe. Um, <laughs> and I put up all my post-its and index cards with all my ideas. And then I thought, well, what else would you want to do? And I was like, I'm gonna exercise. I've been saying I'm gonna exercise for a long time. So I found Ryan Heffington with his crazy Instagram aerobics dance party. And I like went to church, like crying on the floor in my underwear, like wearing like a dish rag as a turban, like to like Stevie Nicks and Robin. It's amazing. And then I thought, you know what? I have this app called Headspace. I've been threatening people that I'm going to become a meditator for decades. (laughs) And I started doing it and you know what? Two or three times a day, that shit feels good. And then I was like, there's a blender. I've always wanted to juice. I've never juiced. Girl, I make myself a green juice every day, and you know what? That shit is good. It's fucking delicious. You know, I don't want to be tone deaf here because I know that we're all seeing these articles. We read the news, and it's tragic, and it's heartbreaking. And then you see, like, the Medium.com article where the girl's like, three weeks into the pandemic, and I got my thigh gap back. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I, I know that, like... There's a line there for hobbies and interests. But really, like, even that girl that got her thigh gap back, like, all of us, I feel like this is this opportunity to, like, remember that this is all precious. Like, our lives are precious, and our friends are precious. And I'm greatly privileged to have friends so precious that I, I can just go to a second house. Like, who fucking has that in the world? Some people don't have one. And my husband is precious. And all the houses I lived in are precious. And... Even though the dog, who is gone, and I swear I see his shadow around here all the time, is precious, so is my living dog, Frankie, who is waiting for me to come back home, like a 10-minute walk from here right now. Oh, I didn't mention that. It's only 10 minutes away. I see Jack every day. Every day I see him. Uh, I walk there. I wear my mask. I like to do a funny thing when I'm near the house where I just text him, Rapunzel, And then I stand in my own front yard and he comes to the window and then my Ewok head of a dog looks at me and starts like whining. And then we just chat for a minute. Or sometimes maybe he's like, do you want to go to the roof? So we go to our roof and we sit like 10 feet apart in masks. And we talk for like an hour and watch the sun go down. Other times I don't tell him that I'm coming over. And I just walk there and and I stand in my front yard and I look up at my house and I just hear like Rachmaninoff or Billy Joel, whatever, being played, banged on the piano, like pouring out the windows. And I'm like the ultimate returner, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm literally like standing in my own yard looking at my own home that I live in now, but I'm, it's just a life I'm not a part of right now. Do you know what I mean? And then I come back to this little cage where, I have my ideal wall and my journal on the couch where I'm actually fucking writing in it again. And I light a stick of incense. It's my favorite incense that Jack delivered wrapped in eight layers of hazmat plastic when he brought me groceries a few days ago. And I light it and I make tea. And it's not my home, but this place is keeping me safe right now. And I love that coming back to this place for all that muscle memory, it's taught me that like, you get to redefine what a place is to you. Like, it's not out of your control. You can turn what you think is a prison cell into a nest if you want to. I think that if it comes down to it, everything's gonna be okay. And I should tell y'all that I am going home tomorrow. It's been a month, so I get to go back to my house. And I'm so excited to go back there to my husband and my dog and my vinyl records that I miss and all the lovely plants that Jack has around the house. And I love, like, hearing classical music as I wash the dishes. It makes everything elegant. You can be, like, in your underwear scrubbing a mug, and, like, if Bach is playing on a piano from the living room, you're like, my life is fucking fabulous. You know what I mean? I miss it. And I'm excited. Excited to go back. And it's still going to be quarantine. But it's going to be quarantine with my favorite person and my favorite dog and my favorite family. Thanks. Hey.
0: Hey. Oh my goodness, gracious.
3: It doesn't hurt me. Yeah, yeah, you
0: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is First Aid Kit, covering Kate Bush behind me now. And before that, we heard from Risk's own David Crabb. David uh, produces the Risk shows out in Los Angeles, and he teaches for the Story Studio. You'll be happy to hear that as of this moment that I'm recording this episode, David is back with his partner Jack in their own home, and staying healthy and well so oh my goodness there have been so many moments like that during these risk live streams where you just really really feel the moment you know like there there have been several of the stories told in risk live streams where I don't know, it just really, really felt like we were so connected as a community, you know, like there's usually about three hundred or so people tuning in, and it's it's a very unique experience to be at one of those live streams. Now, we don't have a live stream to be announcing right now, but I've announced already a couple times that we are having a pitch a thon on May 29th at ten PM Eastern and seven p.m. Pacific and it's pay what you wish you go to risk-show.com slash tour to get your tickets. And you can email me at Kevin at risk-show.com. If you have any interest in doing a two minute long pitch of a story at the pitchathon, and then getting my feedback, maybe some feedback from some other folks on the staff, definitely feedback from the rest of the audience. You know, people will be kind of rooting for what they'd like to hear on Risk eventually. So it's going to be a really, really interesting, fun night. Don't miss that. And don't forget all of the educational opportunities we have at thestorystudio.org. Amy Salloway was just gushing about how thrilled she was, how excited she was about how the most recent online workshop that that she taught was, she said it had a very similar feel to those live stream shows we've done where there's just such, you know, connecting happening and people are really there to like be there for one another and help each other out and like really give one another great feedback and and work on meaningful stories with one another. These workshops are just invaluable. They're all at the storystudio.org. You can hire me for one-on-one consultations at kevinallison.com all kinds of, you know, about storytelling or other sorts of creative projects or even mentoring around kink, BDSM or creative life in general. That's at kevinallison.com. You can also hire me at Cameo. If you go to cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison, I can send you a private video message to you or a loved one, you know, a little whatever you want. You could have me sing a song or You know, recite a state sketch or, (laughs) you know, it could be silly or it could be incredibly sincere. I love speaking directly to fans so you can have that done directly to you or to someone you love if you go to cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Make sure to follow us on all your socials at risk show. And don't forget to support us over at patreon.com risk. There's so much to find there and it means so much that our fans are helping us out over there. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. A very risky sort of story. A revelation. (laughs) Revelation.